Chats from the Blog Cabin. Your favorite podcast is here. Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. You know the show where I invite people virtually into the blog cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting with Vince. He's the author of My Pursuit of Beauty. Amazing book. And he talks about how it's like to be a, a cosmetic chemist, certified nose, and talks about going from creating all these cosmetic products to experiencing the glam and the glitz that is in Hollywood. And as he says, the, the back crazy. So Vince, welcome to the show. Thank you, Melissa. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Good. good. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little about yourself first. Well, to your point, I'm a cosmetic chemist and a perfumer. I've been doing it about 25 plus years now. So that means that we develop uh, everything as far as hair care, skin care, bath and body, manicure, pedicure, baby products, and of course, fine fragrances and everything in between. So we have, a, we have an R&D lab that we um, have in Capistrano Beach, California, which is about an hour south of Los Angeles, and then a manufacturing plant out in Tempe, Arizona, where we make where we scale up everything. So it's really a full-service you know, concept to launch. So if you're a, a, a prior person, a doctor, a celebrity, a retailer, and want to put a brand together, we take you through the whole entire process and kind of hold your hand through the whole process as well. Now, you had always wanted to own your own company, but you went through a lot of different companies to finally get to the point where you were able to have your own kind of like label brand. So right. let's talk about working with all the different companies that you've worked with. Well, I'm very insubordinate, so it didn't work out. I was, <laughs> I was new that from day one. I actually, I never been actually employed by a company in my life. I, I opened my corporation in 1995 when I was 20. So I've always been a consultant, even though I worked for other people. I never actually been in, like on a W-2 or that kind of thing. So I just wasn't ever, I'm just not wired that way. I've been, uh, I think, wired as an entrepreneur since I was 11, 12, 13, 14. So I just, I haven't been able to shift that. So I'm, I'm not really good at taking directions. Um, I'm, I'm a phenomenal collaborator. I love working with people and doing things together. It just wasn't like, oh, you got to be here at 8. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll be there at 10. You, know, you can't wear, you got to wear a shirt and tie. Well, no, I'm not going to wear a shirt and tie. So I wasn't even being like, you know, um, a smart ass. It's just I just not wired that way to be able to um, not be on my own schedule and do do what I want to do and when. Now you have. I actually love the fact the way you decided you wanted to create cosmetics and perfumes. Tell us a little backstory about that. What happened in your childhood? Well, a little embarrassing story, but it's totally true. To your point, I I grew up watching The Young and the Restless with my grandmother as early as you know five or six years old. Uh, and I used to just watch it with her every day. And and they had a fictitious cosmetic company called Jabot. That was actually what they did for on a, on the show for a living. And I just I got interested in it from the very beginning. And I even I, I remember it being literally at six or seven and using my sister's easy bake oven to try and pretend like I was making <laughs> you're making products into it. And it just it, it stuck with me. And I, and I my whole entire childhood into early adulthood, I never shifted from what I wanted to do. I never had a different thought, a different career. Um, in my mind. So that was um, as, then about, you know, ninth, about 10th, 11th grade in high school. I had a very good friend, Stacy, who was a, a brilliant graphic artist. And she developed my logo for my company when I was in 11th grade. And that logo is still what I use 35 years later for my company. So it, it really was from the very, very beginning of my um, childhood. 
Wow, I just love that. Now it can't. You also were a big Dynasty fan as well, correct? Right, which made things even worse, right? Because the young again, I was only like I was born in '74, so Dynasty came out in '81. So I was only about seven or eight years old. So between the young and the restless and the stuff of Dynasty, the money, the power, the all, all that kind of stuff, that wasn't really a great way to shape my life, but it, but you know, but it did. So I thought I thought I had to like you know develop beauty products and also then also show you know throw a champagne glass to somebody as well um, and have a cat fight. But it, but it was it was really the um, it was really more about the stuff and wanting to say oh I wanted to be able to achieve that and have the private jet and you have the a, you know high rise you know building. I don't have any of that by the way, so that hasn't worked yet. But that was what what shaped all of what I wanted to do, which what probably wasn't a very good um, model. For growing up, that's for sure. <laughs> now, you did have a lot of ups and downs in relationships and as far as money goes as well. Can you tell us, share some of that story? Because we don't want to give away too much in the book. Yeah, well, I, I, to, to your point, I mean, I, I got in the car and I drove to, I left, I grew up on a Jersey shore in South Jersey on, on the ocean. And I just, one day I said, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. And I got in the car and I drove and I didn't know what I was, I really didn't know where I was going. I didn't know if I was going to, Denver or Nashville or Texas or California or Chicago. And I just kept driving as I was thinking. And then eventually I got to Malibu, California, and that's like on the ocean. So it was either there or next stop was Tokyo. But I kept going. So that was the only option. So that's where I that's where I ended up. And I I just lived off my credit cards for almost two years, robbing Peter to pay Paul and moving them back and forth to keep myself going, which is again another very bad idea to do. Uh, it took me like, you know, seven, eight years to, to pay it all off eventually. Um, but that's how I did it. I mean, I didn't have any cash in my pocket. I just happened to have credit. So that's what I what I used to get through the, the first three or four years. But it seems like that you had a lot of struggles that I think a lot of people can actually identify with. You had the body dysmorphia. You had, I do not know how to pronounce this, and I'm so sorry. Yeah. So tell us what that is first. So trichotillomania is a hair pulling disorder. Uh, so you literally pull, you know, pull out your hair, and it's kind of in the same category like cutters and people that bite their nails. So it's, it's a you know OCD uh, disorder. And my my I was, as I mentioned, I was very close to my grandmother, and then she passed away when I was 11. Um, and I I started pulling my hair out about a week after that. So I had that my whole entire life. I still have it now. It doesn't go away. You know, I learned how to control it a little bit. Um, but it, a lot of people have it. It actually affects mostly women. I think it's high 99% women versus men. So it's a much more of a, of a female um, disorder. And normally it could be hair on your head, eyelashes, eyebrows, leg hair, armpit hair, pubic hair. Everyone does everything. It's, it's really a um, unusual disorder. But but I it's you know that that triggered to your point a lot of genetic dysmorphic disorder. And that's what that's kind of what the title of the book is about. Was you know, my pursuit of beauty, not only trying to find it. In myself, which was always a pursuit for me, but also, um, you know, doing it for other people in the beauty industry. So I had many, many plastic surgeries, um, and it's kind of a joke because I, I come from a very um, strong-willed Italian, I'm 100% Italian from an Italian family in New Jersey, and my I always tried to change my nose and my face and the whole thing. And every single time I came out of surgery, I pretty much looked the same. So my friends used to joke and say, "Did the doctors put you to sleep and just smack you around and then put bandages on you and wake you up?" Because I, like, I pay for all these surgeries and I end up looking the same. So if you look, if you look at pictures of you know me as 20 years ago, I look the same. So it's kind of <laughs> didn't work out. None of it worked out for me. Wow. So why did you decide to 
do all these plastic surgeries if they're all you were just looking the same and you're having multiple plastic surgeries? You know, the, 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 the real, real reason, which is, again, another embarrassing reason, but go back to Dynasty. There was the, um, the the first gay character ever on TV. His name is, you know, it's a Stephen Carrington was the character's name. And so that, so I, I didn't know I was gay at the time, but I, I found out later on, 20 years later, that I was gay. I wasn't sure, but I knew there was something that I related with him and I wasn't sure. I didn't know what it was because I was too young. But long story short, three or four years into the series, there was a storyline that he had, there was, he was on an oil rig explosion and he, whatever, got, he, he couldn't be found. And, and then two seasons later, he came back as another actor. And, and in my opinion, the, uh, the second actor was much better looking. So in the storyline was he had plastic surgery, and that's why he was a whole different character. And where you know, in real life, the other guys, the other guys' uh, contract just ran out. You know, but they but they had a new character. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, you could do this. You could actually change your face and and look more handsome or look better. That's where I got the idea from. And and I and I, I couldn't afford to do it. So I was in my very early 30s. And it took me actually a long. I didn't do anything. You know, in my teens or my 20s, or it took me about 33 or 34 years old where I finally started, you know, doing it. But again, I look exactly the same, so it's pretty, it's pretty funny, actually, at this point. <laughs> I think that it, I love the way that you can laugh about it, but some of these surgeries are you've gotten really sick off of not maybe not the surgeries, but you've gotten really sick almost to the point of dying. Yeah, it, and again, it was triggered from the surgery, but I, I have a, I got MRSA a couple times, MRSA, which is staph infections. I got that two or three times in my life, and one time I had it really, really bad. Where they, you know, they, it was like I was down for the count. They, they called in the priest, and it was like I was ready to tuck and roll. So it was, it was a bad one. But a, a, a very uh, new medicine called vancomycin uh, saved my life, which is what they had to actually get released from the FDA because it wasn't being used yet. So I had to wait three days for this medicine to come in and it finally got um, airlifted in and, and I made it out of it. But it, it was a, it was, yeah, it was really tough. So I stopped doing the surgeries you know, after that, after my final, you know, my final one. Now on a side note for one of the, uh, the surgeries, when you got MRSA, they actually didn't put it on your chart, correct? They put it as gender reassignment, correct? Right. right. I, I even forgot about that. Yeah. But that I actually, I, I got the MRSA, started in my belly button, and it went all the way up to my chest. My whole, everything from neck and below was um, was infected. And long story short, it made my it made my um, my chest really really inflated because I had an infection there. And they actually had me on the chart as a trans not not, not transgender, but a, uh, a sex change operation. Um, so they were treating me as a sex change operation page, uh, patient for three three days before I, we knew they had the wrong chart. So that was the other problem. So that's another just ridiculous thing that happened to me where, you know, you kind of hear those stories where you, you go in to have your, your leg cut off and they cut off the wrong leg. Right. Cause they don't look to read the, put it on the chart properly. Mm -hmm. you, you really have to be your own advocate in the hospital or have, or have a very good friend or a family member, you know, there for you. Cause, I mean, there's mistakes that can happen pretty easily. Wow. I can, I can only imagine though. We're going to take a brief commercial break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about, all that you've done in the beauty industry, how you've worked with people and everything. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Here's our commercial. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Okay. Do you feel betrayed by life, your body, or by someone that you love? You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. 
Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years. I lost everything that day, my identity, my worth, and the future I had worked so hard to create. While it was a long and arduous journey back to myself, today I know who I am, what I want, and I am happier and more confident than I ever was before. I've got what I call naked self-worth, which is the ability to see know and love yourself for who you are, not for what you accomplish or for who you are in relation to others. No matter what has shattered your heart, if you're ready to get clear on who you are, what you want, and to learn how good life really can be, then life choreography is for you. Even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything. Life Choreography is a comprehensive five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts, and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to NakedSelfWorth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past. Reclaim your sexy and start re-choreographing life on your own terms so you can love and be loved for exactly who you most authentically are. And we are back talking with Vince who wrote My Pursuit of Beauty. This book right here is amazing. I mean, guys, you need to pick it up because this is a page turner. I just can't. Every time something happened in your life, I was like, that really didn't happen. It's like everything that could have happened to you did happen to you. It, it, unfortunately, it's all true. I, I had a ghostwriter for the book as well. I'm Mickey Goodman um, out of Atlanta, Georgia. She's a brilliant uh, writer. I have like every learning disability you can imagine. So it was very hard. I couldn't write it myself personally. But I, I mean, every word in the book is mine. Uh, but to your point, when I was telling the story to my ghostwriter, she was like, this this is, this can't be, this didn't really happen. This, and then she, we, we just would go on for fun and you know, Google things. She's like, oh my God, there it is. It did happen to you and blah, blah, blah. So it, it was, uh, she couldn't believe it. It should have been fiction. Yeah. And to that point, your relationships that you just kept throwing money at people, was that because you didn't feel worthy of love? Yeah, exactly. I, I, again, I just was, I, I was really like unsure of myself at the time. So I always thought, I, again, I didn't like the way I looked. So that was always kind of part of the issue. So I always thought I had a like, and, I, and I've always had really, really um, very overly handsome boyfriends, kind of models and actors. So I always had these really good looking guys, which is great, but I didn't know what they were there for, what they were there for. So I always was kind of throwing money at them and stuff and overdoing it. And of course, I realized you know later on that that was all ridiculous. But I but I did it all during my twenties, though. Yeah. Wow. So there's a couple of scenes in the in the book that I want to talk about. The one that I thought was the most funniest one was the mermaid statue when you guys got pulled over. <laughs> so talk about that one. <laughs> I had a I had a life size about six foot uh, mermaid um, 
torso. It was a torso actually on a, you know, on a board and, and from a, an artist named Judy Carson out here in, in LA. And she's a brilliant sculptor. And I, I just love marine life and everything. Anyway, so it was a plaster sculptor. And I finally moved, you know, we, we wrapped it up like you would any piece of artwork and, and put it in the trunk. And it was, and, but it was a, it's only a torso, but it's, but it's like a six foot long torso. And immediately after we left my building, we got pulled over by the cops and it was like really aggressive. We, we were, we only were going like 15, 20 miles an hour. We knew we weren't speeding and they pulled the guns on us and everything to get out of the car and put your hand out. What the hell's going on? They, they thought that they thought the mermaid was a dead body in the trunk wrapped up and we didn't close the trunk properly. So it, it just was like most bizarre things you can imagine. And talking about, you also has a lot of chance meetings with people that you actually kind of like meeting Eric Braden from the Young and the Restless on a plane. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Again, back and now he, he was part of the show that I watched, you know, growing up. And then we ended up being sitting you know, right next to each other. So that was another, another fluke, you know, as well. So um, let's talk about some of the things that you were, that you actually, we talked about MRSA being fired from your job. We've already talked about. How about when you were dealing with depression and you ended up having to go in the hospital for a while? Yeah, I had, I had a lot of depression growing up. And again, and trichotillomania is kind of part of it. It's, uh, they kind of, um, doctors are kind of like now, you know, uh, uh, wrote white papers about this, really a lack of serotonin uh, in the brain, which is what causes this disorder. And the same thing again with cutting and other kinds of disorders as well. So with that being said, the, the lack of serotonin will give you depression sometimes as well. And I, and, and like you said, I had a lot of tremendous ups and downs um, you know, in my life. And I, and I was suicidal at one point. I, I, ho I was thinking that it wasn't real, but actually it was. And it put me in a hospital for about a 10-day stay to kind of regroup and get you know, get some help. So I, I mean, I've been through all of it for sure. So how did you overcome all this and still be able to you know, put it aside and maybe not put it aside, but put it out of your mind to be able to still create your company. That's, that's what I was saying, you know, um, I think you have to be wired that way or not. I do get asked all the time about entrepreneurship and what do you do or not do. And I just, there's many, many times, I mean, there's a, probably hundreds of times I could think that I wanted to give up. And then like the following morning, you know, you're ready to go. Like, for example, I'm, I'm a big, massive fourth generation Philadelphia Eagles fan. And you know when the team loses on a Sunday, you hate them and say, "I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna watch them again." And then Monday morning, you're like, "Okay, let's see what they're gonna do next week." So it's kind of the same thing. I would kind of rebound back the following day um, and just keep going. But I think you're either wired that way or you're not. Uh, you can't really, I don't think you really can teach entrepreneurship because you have to be. I mean, it really has to be afraid of nothing. You gotta be afraid to. Have, you can't be. Um, you have to be willing to have the ups and downs and have no money sometimes and have a lot sometimes and not have any and not have a steady paycheck. And you know, some people just cannot, you know, fathom the idea of not having, you know, an every a twice a month paycheck and whatever. And I, and I just don't, I have no interest in that because I can't control, you know, what I'm doing if I do it that way. So I think it's just a way you have to be either wired that way or not. So let's talk about creating your company. Like you said, you, you're, friend in high school did your graphics which you're still using today so you obviously have loyalty to people but what did you learn from each particular company that you were with that you were consulting with well i've always took something away for sure again it was always again mostly in the beauty industry so i was always kind of learning um you know what needed to be done you know for example my company is called turnkey beauty and it's just the, and the, the name is for just the way it sounds because as, as i was going through my career like if you came to me as hey, my name is Melissa, I want to put a you know I want to put a skincare line together, and you need formulations. But of course, what you need also then is a cap, a bottle, an actuator, a box. You need 
the copy, you need regulatory review, you need so you need the whole thing. So as I went through my career, I learned that we I was able to pull in every piece of what's needed to get the company to get somebody's project from fruition to launch. So in the very beginning, I just was working on formulation, but I'm like, well, why do I just why would I just do formulations when I know you know anybody creating a new brand needs to have everything? So that's kind of the main thing I took away is how to work with um, packaging people and how to understand your die lines and mechanical drawings and CAD drawings and also of course the formulation work and stability and, and all the regulatory stuff to go through. It's a it's really really involved to get a product line to the market. It could take almost two years to get a moisturizer into the market by the time you go through all the regulatory testing and review and that kind of stuff. So I, I've always pulled a piece from every company I consulted for to try to build what I have now. I love that because I mean, and, and you you already said you were dyslexic, so all that paperwork has, has got to be like. How did you get it to work to where? Did you have people helping you with the paperwork? Well, I always I always joke that I mean, if it wasn't for spell check, I'd be I'd be bankrupt because I, I you know when I first started in 1995, I, I mean spell check is kind of was just coming out, and if, I mean I if I didn't have that, people would think I was like you know had like that I like was like a you know an idiot because I, I just write you know, I write so bad. Um, so that's kind of that was good timing for me, and I. But I. But honestly, was I, I learned how to do everything myself. I hate it. Don't get me wrong. You know. But I mean, for example, I mean, I'll just kind of just show you. I mean, for for fun here, this is something that we're. Um, how do I just show you? I'll give you like an example here. So this is what a this is like what what a formulation you know looks like. So I'm working off of these kind of grids, you know, my whole life, which I which is very very hard for me to kind of see it the proper way or. Um, put the numbers in a proper way. So I, I check, I double check, I triple check, and I quadruple check everything I do. Even if it's even if it's sending out a FedEx, I, I have to make sure every single thing is you know lined up. So, but I think it's made me a lot more successful because I am really uh, anal, making sure that nothing is is wrong most of the time. So how big is your company? Oh, we're not that big. We're we're pretty boutique. There's only there's only ten of us in total. Uh, can we again? We do. Uh, when I mentioned we take products from beginning to end, it could take anywhere from 18 months to two years. So we only take about four to six clients uh, like every 18 month cycle. So we keep it pretty small, but it's very, very exclusive. I mean, and, and we have, we work with the biggest celebrities in the world and the biggest doctors in the world that you can imagine. So we, we keep it that way on purpose. We don't really want to grow bigger than that. Cause I, cause I, one of the sales, um, one of the, uh, you know, caveats are that the, if the people are hiring, my, that they're actually getting me to work on their projects. So if, so if I took too many on, I wouldn't be able to be the one actually doing the formulation work. And I'd have to sub it out to my uh, interns or that kind of thing. And it's not, you know, they don't not really look. So when they, they're looking for my company, they're looking for me. So I got to, I want to try and keep it that way if I can. Now let's talk about, do you still have their skincare line that you created in Poland for Europe? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's called, it's called Caviar and Diamond. And we, we it's right on my it's on my website right now, which is VincenzoSkincare.com, and it's and it's there to be right now, and it's a beautiful product line that you um, you feel and see the results anywhere between 15 to 30 seconds because it's so it's called instant gratification skincare, meaning that you have results you know right away. So that took me about seven years to put together, but it's finally out there and ready to go. We're, we're winning all kinds of awards with it and getting a lot of press, but it it just came out and it's all um, available as of now as well. So is it just available in Europe? Because I know in the book you, you said that you took it to Europe because you knew the price point was going to be too high for people here. In we actually were launching it originally in Dubai. So we actually made the product line for the UAE, for the, the Dubai market. 
and that's where we were launching it. And but with the pandemic, as soon as we were ready to launch, the the distributor we had actually folded up shop, so we never ended up over to now. Uh, to your point, it's just on my website. Now we're still trying to find a home, you know, for it somewhere in the UAE. It, it is expensive, but but for what it actually does and the results people get, they don't mind spending it because it's it's like it's a uh, it's very efficacious how it works. So it's got to be uh, so much. I'm trying to think of the word, and it just left my mind. But it's got to be gratifying for you to see not only are you creating products for somebody else, but you're also creating your own line as well. Right. And, and that was my goal since I was a kid. So, I mean, I, I just kind of started doing it for other people to make a living. And I, but, but I ended up really enjoying it, and I, and I still love doing it. And between 1995 and now, I launched over 300 brands in 25 years. So it's been a really a lot of work for other people, but I still have my dreams of having my own line and getting it out there and, you know, and um, making that successful as well. My, my goal when I was a kid was to be, you know, Estee Lauder, you know, Ralph Lauren, Donna Karen, you know, Chanel, Louis Vuitton, name for myself. So that's what I'm still working for. So hopefully many, many years after I'm long and gone that the, that the brand will still be out there. Like, like, the, like the ones that are now that are over 100 years old, right? like the Chanel and Lauders and that kind of stuff. Speaking of Louis Vuitton, that plays a huge part in a pretty much a part of your book. Yeah, yeah, probably my tornado I was in. Yeah, yeah, I I, I do have a Louis Vuitton um, fetish, I guess if you will. So it's one of my my favorite brands, and I, I one of the things that happened to me also, I was stuck in a F five tornado in in Iowa uh, during my one of my traveling things, and my my I, I made it to a a um, an overpass. With a bunch of people that, that, that we we uh, we anchored ourselves down with snow chains, but anyway, my my rental car got sucked up in the air and all my luggage went flying up in the air. So all my Louis Vuitton went flying into the cornfield, and I was kind of I was screaming um, while this tornado was going on, saying, "Oh my Louis, Louis!" Louis and, and the lady thought the lady thought there was somebody in my car. She said, oh my God, is there a person in the car? I'm like, "No, no, no, it's just my luggage." Said, God damn it! She's like, "You scared the hell out of me." I'm like, "The luggage is more important than a than a child." <laughs> Now, do you have your book with you right now? I do. I do. Do you have a part that you want to read out of it? Oh my God, I would. I would have no idea. Um, just pick something randomly, or did, or something. I don't even know. Just something randomly. Let's see. I'm trying to think. Uh, I, I know one. I since I, you actually set me up for a good ending here. I think I'll read you the very, very end because it kind of sums everything up here. If I can find it. Uh, let's see here. Nobody moves. Cause this, this kind of is the whole point of everything we talked about. Melissa. So I said, I, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to say the word Auschwitz in here, which is the concentration camp. And I'll tell you real fast before I read this. So I, one of the things I did that changed my life, I'm, I'm personally a world war II history buff. Um, so I know everything about, I, I can take anybody education wise, it was through World War II, whether it's from the German side, the American side, the Japanese side, Soviet Union side, whatever. Um, and long story short, I, I spent a night um, in, in Auschwitz at the concentration camp, and it was something that you're not allowed to do, but I had, but just being totally transparent, I, I bribed a, um, a security guard to let me stay overnight in the camp to try and just give my respects and do the whole thing. So that was a very, very life changing moment. That's a whole chapter in a book just by itself. But the reason why, that's in the last paragraph of my book. So I say, I've also come to realize that beauty, like the wild yellow buttercups blooming at Auschwitz, can thrive in the most hostile environments. It, 
it is within all of us just waiting to emerge. Um, and what that actually means, what I what I saw and experienced when I was at Auschwitz was, um, and I even told the people that worked there, they, they didn't realize it themselves. When you're on the camp, which is miles long, there's, of course, there's the fences that are there, and there's very distinctive indentations in the ground, which were unfortunately they were execution pits and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So where the where the actual fence stops on the on the outside of the camp, it's just regular grass, the whole thing. One one centimeter on the other side of the of the fence on the campsite where the execution happens, there's beautiful buttercups that are growing all through the uh, execution pits, you know, through near the gas chambers and, and the whole thing. So and it actually when you walk the camp, it stops right at the fence where no murders actually have happened. So something I had noticed, I mean, that I just, it was just kind of something like that was amazing to kind of see that I think it just is like, it's, I don't know, I don't know how to really kind of unpack it. It was just really an unbelievable experience. But people that worked there never even realized, I mean, it's the same soil, it's the same grass, it's only that far away from each other from the, where the fence ends. And, and it's very distinctive, like kind of like a, a line that you can see the difference from where inside the camp versus the outside of the camp. I love how you just read that because I actually I had actually kept going back on my Kindle because I have the book in the Kindle. But I was like, I want to read that part if he doesn't read it. And it's so weird that you read that part because I actually had it open so that I could read it. But let's yeah. talk about your experience at Auschwitz because that is huge. I mean, you didn't want to get all these blankets. You didn't want you wanted to live like they lived. Yeah, I, I always, I always got to be like, I, be like, kind of really careful when I tell the story because I mean, I don't, I don't ever want to be disrespectful to anybody, and I wasn't like, I wasn't going there for like to, you know, for, um, for just like looky loo reasons. I, I'm personally, I'm personally 100% Italian, Roman Catholic. So I'm not even, I'm not even Jewish. And I've got nothing to do with it, but I had a, a fascination um, with just how um, one person, being Hitler, for this matter was able to manipulate a whole continent to do this stuff, which I think is just disgusting. So I've always been um, like kind of studying him and not from a, not in a positive way, but in a negative way, obviously studying him and how this actually could, could happen. So I've always wanted to see, um, give my respect and see these camps and, and kind of do the whole tour and just kind of give my respect. And that's, and that's really what I did, but I wanted to have, and you can't say one day, you know, me at Auschwitz is, is equivalent to anybody that, had, that went through that horrible experience. But I did try and do it um, authentically as I can. My my current uh, my fiance is a fashion designer and a, and a and a designer in general. So he actually made me um, after researching. We made me these like pajamas that were the same type of fabric, the same lightness. So I so I once I bribed a security guard, I stayed overnight in one of the barracks um, with the pajamas, you know, with no shoes. I mean, I no. Of course, I gave no electronic advice. I gave my cell phone and everything to the guard just in case something were to happen. Um, and it was a horrible night. It was like it went down like 35 degrees. It poured rain, um, but I didn't um, like quit and I stayed. And it was it was I, I don't even know how to explain it. It, it was it was I, I all I can tell you was the day before I did it, I was one person, and the following morning I was a different person. And that was really kind of what this book really kind of sums up. And um, and to your point, Melissa, too about the actual chapter, that's the very very end of my book. And my book actually was done completed and we were in final editing and getting ready to print and I actually this this, this only happened about two and a half years ago when I went to the camp and I actually made everybody stop the printing of the book to get this just chapter in there because it was so important to me mm -hmm. um so it really was just I I just kind of left the following day not caring about stuff anymore about 
tangible stuff about how I looked, about how I felt. And it was that only two, it wasn't, it was only about two years ago. It wasn't that long ago. Um, and it was so really a, a biggest shift in my life that I can ever remember. And I remember laying there and reading, there's all kinds of writing on the wall, some in Hebrew, some in Polish, some in Russian. And I, of course, I had no idea what I was reading, but it, it just was the experience of knowing, like I have goosebumps right now, just even just telling you the story. Mm -hmm. So, but it's just very hard to explain, but I, you know, I wouldn't advocate anybody go do it. Um, but I, but I just did it because I wanted just to get, you know, have the experience of, and, and give them the respect of what I, you know, what I studied. Um, overall, I, I minored in Holocaust studies in college. You know, so I always had an interest in just, again, how it happened, why it happened, and and, and how to stop it from never happening again. So that's kind of really what it was about. Yeah, and I love the fact that you said uh, afterwards with the guard, the guard was like hardly anybody makes it the whole night because apparently like maybe 20 so people had tried it. Yeah, exactly. So we, don't, so we don't know if the, if it's an urban legend or not, but this security guard was working there for about 15 years, and he said you know, about a dozen people had, you know, tried to do it and, and wanted to do it. And most of the people that did it were people that from family that actually passed away there. Um, so, and he said that he's not aware of anybody actually going through the whole entire night and doing it. And I, I wouldn't even, it, I mean, I wouldn't call it scary. It was almost more spooky, but more um, comforting. And I, I didn't feel scared. I just felt like there, you, you definitely felt that, what you felt what happened there for sure. I mean, like you knew it. I mean, even if you didn't know, even if you went there blindly, you, you just feel the energy. I mean, there was millions of people that got murdered there, you know, in a matter of like a, a one mile radius. So you just can't, you know, feel you know, that energy. And that's where I went again, back to those buttercups where I would be looking through the camp and just saying, how, how is this like stopping right at the, you know, actually, if you give me one second, I actually will show you, I, maybe I can pull the picture up to the, up okay. to the camera here. It's really interesting let me just pull it up well hope, hopefully i can find it really fast i, I know exactly where it's at i think so let me see here I have it under here we go i'll just try and hold it to the camera the proper way uh, let's see here almost there melissa <laughs> okay <laughs> i think a picture is going to be worth it all yeah. Because, I mean, you can see it in your mind, especially in the book, the way you wrote about it. You can actually visualize it, but to actually see it is going to be right. a better thing. I'm really close. I'm in the right section here. It's got to find the actual. Here we go. Okay. So let me see if I can hold it to the camera. So here, here's the camp. So mm -hmm. on this side of the fence is the outside world. And then right where the fence starts but that, that's by the way that's one of the execution pits you see the flowers start right at the fence and that's mm -hmm. just and on the other side it's the same grass the same it's the whole entire same thing so it starts right up to the inch um and then even here you'll see again another fence right and then if you if you zoom out zoom out here you can see that it doesn't start to like one inch inside so i just mm -hmm. i just i kind of realized and maybe i'm over you know thinking it but I don't, you know, I don't think that I am because it just is like, how could you have the same exact soil, the same exact location, and just and just kind of stops, you know, and then starts in there. So the whole experience was just, um, it, it was life changing for sure. So when you came back from having that life changing experience, what did you do differently? I, I flew home um, about a day or two after. That was my very very last thing I did before I flew home. 
and I I felt like everything was just going slower. I felt like I was walking slower. I was thinking slower. I feel like the airplane was moving slower. And I know it's all kind of sounds like when I got back home to California, that traffic was moving slower. So I just felt um, it's so hard to explain, but just kind of like just just calmer, like just calmer and more at peace and more relaxed. And I, and I still don't, I still can't tell you even now, two years later, why that would have triggered that kind of feeling or why it still does for that matter. Um, I got to just keep unpacking it as, as I talk about it over the next couple of years and try and figure out why, what, what that actually, what, why it shifted in me. Cause I just, the main thing was I, I literally left again, we talked about this genetic, genetic dysmorphic stuff and my plastic surgery. I left there the following day, not caring about any of that anymore, not caring about what I was, what kind of car I was driving, what I looked like. And I don't know why it did that, but it did. I still got to try and figure it out when I keep over the years when I start thinking about it. Maybe it just put things in perspective that these people had nothing and went through such great suffering. Right, right. And, and I, so that's why I say that's why I have to be really careful when I tell the story. Because, okay, I did it for one night. I mean, right, who cares? And I, and I knew the following day I was going to get to go home. So it's not a – so I, I always try and make sure I, I put a caveat saying that, that hopefully no one gets feels disrespected when I tell this story because wasn't, I wasn't going there for, like, you know, for shits and giggles. You know, so it was it was for um, a respectful reason, and that's and I wanted to try and experience as much as I could. Yeah, I honestly think that you did a great job of being respectful in the book, because yeah. you know you talk about you know you didn't you could have easily brought in blankets, you could have done all this other stuff, you could have you know you know electronics taking pictures of all the pit of all the little notes that you saw written all over the place, but you didn't. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and one thing I found out too, because I, I did a whole entire you know tour of the camp during the day with, where there was like you know hundreds of people around. And I one thing I I don't know if you even noticed, but I, I just found this out too when I was there that the the German government and the Israeli government, both governments, they require every single senior class out of every single school in both those countries had to visit Auschwitz as a as a trip before they graduate as a, as a group trip. So that was really and the reason why I bring it up because I had an Israeli. Um, a Israeli school and a, and a German school that was there. Um, and, and I was talking to people that worked in the camp and saying, yeah, they're here like oh, every week is like one of the, one of the, one of the two countries, senior classes are like, are here. Uh, Cause it just, it's part of their curriculum to actually go and make sure they remember it. So it's kind of cool that the German government specifically, you're making their, making their seniors, you know, do that um, to just remember that, you know, what happened. So what would you say to someone that is struggling with the body dysmorphia, the pulling out their hair, of coming out as gay? Because that, those, I mean, you had one, two, three things that, you know, society normally doesn't deem as normal. What would you right. say to someone like that? You have to just, I think you have to just go for the ride and accept who you are. And that, that's, I mean, even, even now, I mean, I would say it's a lot, lot easier. I mean, and even myself, it was easier, a lot easier for me than it was you know, in the 80s. I, I personally fell in a very, very, very lucky window. I was I, I was born in 74. I came out as gay at 20 years old when I was in 1995, uh, excuse me, 1997. So I fell right in that window where AIDS was just starting to get like a smidgen under control, um, where you know, the medicine was starting to come out. So even one year earlier, I, I mean, I mean, who knows? But I remember you know, my first sexual encounters, I was wearing three condoms. Cause I, then I was, I'm not kidding. I was scared to death. And we, and that's kind of the period of time where you still had to go get an ACE test, get away three weeks for the results. You know, so I was right in that lucky window where, you know, the, the people before me, uh, you know, had, 
had much more of a harder time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and for my age group, there was no Will and Grace, there was no Ellen, there was no, so we, we didn't know any of this stuff. I grew up in a farm town, but now, I mean, it, I think it's a lot like, and don't get me wrong, you know, gay, gay, uh, you know, gay boys and, 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 you know, and, and gay girls are like, it's still not easy no matter what, no matter mm -hmm. how you cut it. But I hope, it, I hope it's a lot easier, you know, now than it was um, for sure for me. And, and even my generation, I say, we don't, we didn't nearly have it as bad. There are people that are about 10 years my senior that, that went through the very late seventies and all, and all through the eighties with the AIDS ep epidemic, you know? So it was, so I really, just, you have to just kind of be who you are and, and take the punches that come with it and could you you're gay you're gay you can't change it there's no i mean no matter what people playing like i promise you you can't genie blink it away or it's not i would have done it myself there's no reason to make your life harder on yourself you can say okay i want to go i'm going to go find a girl now and that's going to be it. it just doesn't work that way so the people that unfortunately had that opinion are just unequivocally wrong it just doesn't it just doesn't work that way yeah and speaking to that point um you don't have to go into it if you don't want to but at one point, you were a victim of a hate crime as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, and that was another. Yeah, it was, and that's that's actually what triggered me to to leave. Uh, that's that's when I got in the car and drove to California. So it, it was at the time, it was a really really bad gay bashing that I had in my in my college, uh, and I and I left the following morning, and even to the point where I left all my stuff behind. My I had a, a wonderful uh, roommate, Doug, who's still my my buddy to this day, that got all my stuff to me and. And that's one thing, by the way, that's still on my bucket list. I have not gone back to my college to, reconf to reconfront just the, the, the campus, and you know where it happened. And it was really a bad one too. I was like, you know, it was a very serious one. So I, um, that's one thing still I want to do uh, in the next couple of years. That's kind of my last, my very, very, very last thing to put this whole first forty-five years behind me. It's, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I just very recently um, saw. A great documentary on Hulu about Tina Turner, who I who I love, and so they, they did a documentary, a two-hour documentary on her, and sh and she's a, obviously a very very you know world-renowned uh, singer, right, and actress, and she and by her, by in her own means through her own right has, has been very successful. And like my point that I'm getting to is that she, her whole entire life, even to this interview now where she's 82 years old, oh uh, what about Ike Turner? What tell me the story about Ike and what happened, how you got away to hold it? She's like I'm done talking about Ike. You know, this is like I was, I, I made my own money in business starting in, you know, in 1975. And this is not like, you know, he was just the beginning of my career. So she has to keep reliving this, this the, the horrible, we know, we know very publicly Tina Turner had a horrible, horrible abusive relationship where she almost got killed many times by Ike Turner, you know, and she's like, I, I'm done. I'm done, done with this. Mm -hmm. I, just, I mean, I'm 82 years old. It's like, stop asking me this freaking question. You know, so it's like, that's kind of my point. So I, I want to confront everything. But hopefully get it behind me and like you know it's still, and even for her it still keeps coming up again i mean i'm no celebrity like tina turner but i'm saying but she was like she's she's had it she's like i'm done talking about this like like please this is like you're 35 years and after this has been done you know speaking of celebrities you actually were able to attend jimmy stewart's funeral now tell mm -hmm. about how that came about well, I, I would say I crashed jimmy Stewart's funeral which is probably not a really nice thing to say but i was I was working right across the street. I'm at a salon in Beverly Hills, consulting for them. And I saw, I knew that what the funeral was this day at the Presbyterian Church in Beverly Hills. Um, and I was, just, I was there in the window watching. I mean, I mean, I'm a big old Hollywood fan. That's my 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 favorite genre is like the 19 early 1940s uh, World War II music, the, the movies, the whole entire thing. So I'm watching 
you know, I'm watching uh, Bob Hope go in and Kate Heffern go in and Lauren Bacall go in and Ann Miller and Catherine Grayson and, and everybody you can imagine. So I'm like, I just walked in over there and I sat in the back of sat in the back of the church and I paid my again. I love Jimmy Stewart as well, so I paid my respects to him and 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 I and I did and I had the chapter in the book. I ended up meeting Lauren Bacall in the parking lot afterwards by by complimenting a fragrance she was wearing and we just started chatting and then you know, that led three weeks later to a a, a very ill fated lunch that I had with her, which is another chapter in the book um, where I. Um, ruined one of my idols you know but i but it was amazing to go to lunch with her but but it, i mean that, that's kind of what I, you asked me earlier about how you kind of can chase things you just really got to just do some bizarre things sometimes just and sometimes something happens <laughs> i wouldn't I say that. i wouldn't say go crashing funerals but they the one question i always get is you know what what do you want people to take away from your book and it's kind of a funny answer but totally true which is don't take anything from it. Please don't take anything from it. Like literally like read the book, enjoy it, do the opposite of everything that was in the book. You'd be successful a lot faster. So I'm like, if you take anything away from the book, I'll be disappointed. That's like this. I just like how to do everything wrong. And you know, in, in 25 chapters. But that made you the person who you are. And I think that led up to going to Auschwitz because I don't think if you, you had all those things that had happened to your life, I don't think you would have changed your perspective when you came out of Auschwitz. Right, correct. Correct. Yeah. So, so our time is almost up. Is there one last thing you want to share? No, I think you actually hit it all. This is this is a great you know conversation. I would say just you know and grab the book and it is, it is a good read and don't take anything away from it. Just a, if you if the best thing you can do is learn what not to do and do the opposite and it'd be great. Be in a lot better shape. So tell people where they can find you at. Uh, everything actually lives on my on my personal uh, website, which is just vincepinato.com, which is V-I-N-C-E, Spinato, which is S-P-I-N-N-A-T-O.com. Uh, and we had the book on there for sale and my product line and also my I have a documentary coming out in the fall, uh, which actually the poster is right above my head here. I just realized it's in, it's in the shot uh, called Skin Deep, uh, Formulating a Legacy. And what that's about is actually showing America how products are made from conception to launch. It's really more of a deep dive in actually how we make the products. And that's coming out in the fall some, somewhere, um, Hulu, Netflix. We don't know where Apple. We don't know where it's going to land quite yet, but we're, right now we're showing in the film festivals. Speaking of your documentary, let's talk about real quick the reality show that people were shooting those sizzle reel for during the time that you were like in your book. You were talking about being part of a reality show. Is that the documentary that you're talking about? Yeah, it actually started as a reality show and turned into a docu-series. It was going to be... I was on a couple of shows, but I was on like the Housewives of Orange County and a show called Blowout and one called, you know, um, uh, uh, Workout. So just, I kind of, in the very, very small parts, it wasn't like part of the cast or anything, but I was kind of always developing products and that kind of thing. And long story short, Bravo was interested in developing a reality show at the time, which is again, showing America how we make these products, but it, it turned more into a docu-series. And they've been following me around for almost uh, just over seven years now. So it's been a long time with cameras in my face. So it's finally ready to to come out. But but now it's more of a, it's a documentary, though, and not a reality show. So what season? I'm a real big Real Housewives fan. I did not know that. So what season were you on the Real Housewives? Uh, I, season two. And it was a, a, a couple episodes where it was the, the daughters of called OC Angels. It was the daughters of the uh, you know the housewives that they were making. Uh, we, we developed an energy drink for them and a lip gloss line. Um, so I was there for a couple of photo shoots we did with them. There, I think it's like it's like episode like seven or eight of season two. 
Um, and you, you would know it when you saw because they're wearing they're all wearing like these red dresses, and it it was um, a pretty interesting little <laughs> thing. Bit. <laughs> well, Vince, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your life and writing this book because, uh, like you said, it's entertaining, but also shows you know people have to go through some stuff to get to where they're at. Yeah, you ain't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but y'all, you just have to pick up the book because you're not going to believe it. We just touched on part of the stuff that's happened to you. Yeah, a lot more in there. There's a lot more. So thank you once again for coming on. And I'm going to put everywhere you can find him and everything about the book in the show notes. And as always, be blessed. And remember, keep chatting. Thank you, Melissa. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now.